Today's story has everything. Speakeasies, rat poison, insurance schemes, a murder trust, spoiled sardines, free drinks, naturally, taxi cabs, fruit vendors, freezing cold NYC temperatures, tainted oysters, thinking you've won, and then really, really losing. And at the center of it all, poor Michael Malloy, who just simply wouldn't die. On today's episode, we have many, many ways to die, but we also have the unkillable man. Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, a true crime podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. You'll hopefully forgive me that this episode is coming just a bit after St. Patrick's Day. My friend, all of March is for the Irish in my heart. I wear green every day during the month. I speak only in an Irish brogue or something like that. So you can make Irish coffee in at least a couple of ways. Most often it's now made by adding some Bailey's Irish cream to a cup of coffee. That's a drink that I enjoy as often as I can and probably more often than I should. But we're going to take a step backwards, at least in time, and make an authentic, original Irish coffee. It's not as sweet, but it's a bit more authentic, don't you know? Nope. (laughs) I was wrong. First created in 1943 by an airport chef named Joe Sheridan, this drink was thrown together for passengers whose flight had been sent to his small airport near Limerick, Ireland due to bad weather. The passengers, warmed inside and outside by the delicacy, asked... Is this Brazilian coffee? Because maybe they weren't sure where they'd landed. Anyway, Joe responded, No, it's Irish coffee. And here we are. This drink is traditionally served in a glass mug, but I think it will taste just fine in any type of mug, to be honest. For this cocktail, or cocktail-ish, you'll need hot coffee, hot water, your mug of choice, a spoon, heavy whipping cream, Irish whiskey, and brown sugar. For the mocktail equivalent, you'll remove the Irish whiskey and brown sugar and substitute rum syrup. Okay, so for our cocktail, we're going to first whip some whipping cream. You'll whip about a half a cup of heavy whipping cream until soft peaks form. So you want it to still be pourable, which is different than normally when you're whipping whipped cream. So just the soft peaks. You'll then take your glass mug, if you've got one, and pour hot water into it to warm it up. Put a spoon into the cup and leave it for two minutes. Then dump the hot water out. Take one tablespoon of brown sugar and pour it into the mug. Add one cup of hot coffee and stir to dissolve. Then add two parts Irish whiskey and pour the whipping cream over the back of the hot spoon. It forms a thick, beautiful layer on top of the coffee. If you're listening, you might want to hop over to YouTube for this part so that you can see what it should look like at the end. For the mocktail, we're also going to whip some whipping cream into soft peaks. We're gonna also put hot water into the glass mug and warm it up. Then we're gonna pour two parts of rum syrup into the mug. We'll add a cup of hot coffee and we'll stir. We will also pour the whipped cream over the back of the hot spoon and form that thick layer on top of the coffee. Now that you've got your Irish coffee, let us listen to a story of a very unfortunate Irishman. In May 1933, two gravediggers, supervised closely by a medical examiner, Grave Superintendent Alex J. Medovich, and a few lawmen, began their arduous task in the charity section of Westchester County's Ferncliff Cemetery. Digging slowly and steadily, the gravediggers moved dirt, shovel by shovel, until they made it eight feet down. 
there, the shovels hit wood, a coffin. Well, that might be an over, a bit of an overstatement. It was a pine box. The order came to bring the coffin up. The lid had caved in under the weight of eight feet of earth. Inside was a body, a filthy body. He was wearing socks, shoes, underwear, pants, and just an undershirt. Some blood, somehow still moist, was found on the face of the corpse. The medical examiner, Dr. Hockman, bent to get a closer look and noticed that his face and neck were pinkish red or cherry red. A clue. A hint that Bronx District Attorney Samuel Foley's suspicions that the death certificate, which listed the cause of death as a low-bar pneumonia, was incorrect. You see, carbon monoxide poisoning can cause the skin to turn a cherry red. And D.A. Foley was correct. The result of the blood test in the autopsy was strongly positive. The cause of death was asphyxiation by carbon monoxide. Michael Malloy was born sometime in 1873 in County Donegal, Ireland. It's unknown exactly when he came to the United States, but he probably bought a steerage ticket sometime in the late 19th or early 20th century. He arrived in America alone, possibly by way of Ellis Island, and once he settled in the Bronx, he was clearly a loner with no real friends or family. He worked numerous slum jobs, collecting garbage and sweeping alleys. His career would be credited in later newspaper articles as a stationary fireman. Stationary firemen weren't actually firemen, but instead operated fixed or stationary boilers that provided power and heat to buildings. But mostly, 60-year-old Mike was an alcoholic. Once he found Tony Marino's speakeasy at 3804 Third Avenue, also in the Bronx, it was like his second home sometimes his first home. Almost every night, Mike could be seen hunched over the bar at Tony's speakeasy, lovingly clutching a glass of whiskey or beer. His Irish brogue was on full display when he'd been drinking, and Mike would make friends or friendly with the few others, if any others, that also visited the Third Avenue speakeasy, showing off his home accent. Almost as much as Mike loved booze, he loved sardine sandwiches, Tony, who couldn't compete with even the slummiest of the other speakeasies, tried his best. And part of trying his best was providing his customers with a free lunch tray, often featuring the cheapest oysters and sardines that money could buy. Mike either loved those oysters or sardines, or he loved free food, but either way, his breath could be smelled for miles. Tony Marino, by all accounts, was not the nicest guy. According to his own wife, Eleanor, he once put the stove into the hall and proceeded to smash the furniture with an axe, and then ran into the street with the axe in hand. On numerous occasions, he became so violent that it was with difficulty that we were able to restrain him. On several occasions, he threatened to turn the gas on in our room and kill the baby and myself. This may have been on account of a traumatic brain injury, another one of those traumatic brain injuries, that he got from falling down four flights of stairs at the age of 12, or it may have been due to the trauma of his mother's death when he was nine. In any case, by the late 1920s, Tony, ever the entrepreneurial spirit, had entered the speakeasy trade. Ah, speakeasies! You American history nerds and or just anyone who had an American history class may remember Prohibition, that 13-year experiment in which America said, hey, alcohol is bad, and then Americans said, we will keep drinking, thanks. In the United States, the word speakeasy first appeared in a newspaper article on March 21st, 1889, referring to the name 
name for a saloon in the western Pennsylvania town of McKeesport that sells without a license. Evidently, the saloon's owner, Kate Hester, told her rowdy customers to speak easy to avoid police attention. Within a decade, noted the New York Times, speakeasies in New York were familiar institutions of metropolitan life, and it ranges from the waterside backroom or the cellar gathering place to the deluxe speakeasy where smart New York meets. Anyway, Tony got himself into the business, but in July 1932, Tony sat at a table with 29-year-old father of three, Daniel Kreisberg, a fruit vendor, and Francis, or Frank, Pasqua, a newlywed and an undertaker who owned a funeral parlor on East 117th Street. Business, Tony declared, is bad. All three men were feeling a bit, well, in need of some cold, hard cash, a little light in the wallet, so to speak. Legend has it that Frank said, why don't you take out insurance on Malloy? I can take care of the rest. The three men snickered and raised their glasses in a toast. The murder trust was begun. Completing the murder trust, because not only could these men not keep their mouths shut, but they would eventually need some serious help, were first Joseph, or Red, Murphy. Red was a regular at Tony's and was hired to pour drinks for a dollar a day from time to time, but Red was known to drink more than he served. Red had been in the foster care system as a youth and spent his childhood bounced from foster home to foster home. When Tony took pity on him and hired him to work at the speakeasy, Red was unhoused, and so spent all his time at the speakeasy, sleeping on its dirty, disease-filled sofa at night, with a thin blanket to keep him warm. Coming in near the end was taxi driver Hershey Green. More on him later. Despite the fact that Frank told Tony to get the insurance policy, it seems that Frank is the one who actively sought insurance coverage. Frank believed that killing Mike would be easy and that it would help his business. Remember, Frank owned a funeral parlor. He would handle all the funeral arrangements and then overcharge the insurance company and make a sweet little profit. In fact, the plot seemed remarkably simple. Step one, insure Mark Malloy, hopefully by a few companies and for as cheaply as possible with the largest return on the investment, I guess. Step two, kill Michael Malloy. Step three, collect insurance. Step four, celebrate. Frank somehow convinced Mike himself to help him get the insurance policy, possibly by liquoring him up first. He claimed the speakeasy as his address and told the insurance agent he was born on June 5th, 1885, which would have made him 47 instead of 60, so probably made up date of birth. He said that he worked at Frank's funeral parlor and had no friends or relatives except for Frank. And when the agent asked who he wanted as his beneficiary, Mike said, Well, the only friend I have here who has been doing good to me is Frank Pasqua. He gave me a job and feeds me. Never mind that Frank did absolutely no such thing. Apparently, this policy was still a bit suspicious to the insurance company, and on August 24th, the word rejected was stamped across the front of that prudential life insurance policy. Quickly following, the MetLife policy would also be turned down. Not to be deterred by any attempts to prevent insurance fraud, Frank proposed that the group insure Mike under a fake name, with Red posing as his brother, seeing as both Red and Mike were of Irish descent. And for this go-around, it, it wouldn't be necessary to let Mike in on the plan. And it worked. They managed to get Prudential to approve two life insurance policies to the tune of $1,976. For MetLife... $1,600, or a grand total of $81,018.78 in today's cashola. That is, if Mikey were to die an accidental death. 
With his hurdle quickly scaled, now on to step two of our plan. Kill Michael Malloy. The easy part. Or so they thought. By all accounts, Michael Malloy would drink anything that was put in front of him. Whiskey, beer, bourbon, anything suited his fancy. He was not a man of moderation. In the later trial of the murder trust, testimony said that Mike appeared to be broken in health from too much drinking. His eyes were bloodshot, and so was the tip of his nose and his cheeks. His posture was bent from years of leaning over the bar. And that's just how he looked. Imagine the state of his insides. It wouldn't take much to push him over the edge of death, thought the crew. Imagine the surprise and delight Mike felt when Tony explained that in recognition of Mike's steadfast loyalty to his speakeasy, that he was being granted free booze for life. By this point, Mike taking advantage of Tony's penchant for hiring alcoholics to pour the liquor was also now occasionally working as bartender. Some nights he slept, cuddled up next to Red's sofa. So, a place to sleep and a permanently free bar tab? A dream come true for Michael Malloy. Although Mike really took Tony up on that free booze offer and drank for a majority of his waking day, it did not kill him. He returned morning after morning, ready to fill his cup and then fill it again and again. Sometimes he'd just wake up from next to the sofa and just start drinking. He supposedly declared, best place I ever drank in, another morning's morning if you don't mind. Tony would sigh and fill up his cup day after day. How much he drank exactly in the one week of his open bar tab was mind boggling to all who witnessed this feat of endurance. And it seems that his insides were simply pickled. No bottle of regular booze was going to touch Michael Malloy. Oh, and a note on the booze of that day, that stuff was nothing like what we drink today. It wasn't a word harsh. That's putting it mildly, yeah. Moonshiners would often put things like dead rats and rotten meat into their moonshine to make it taste like bourbon or add creosote to create a scotch. To make this stuff palatable, bartenders mixed in various, usually sweet, flavored ingredients. In short, the cocktail was the child of prohibition. I guess we have the American government's failed experiment to thank for this show. <laughs> anyway. Realizing that despite the fact that old Mikey was drinking dead rats, this was not going to kill a man who preserved his insides. They were going to have to be a bit more uh, creative. They started by adding antifreeze, turpentine, horse liniment, and rat poison to his shots of liquor. These, however, failed to work. Then Red suggested the switch over to pure wood alcohol. Wood alcohol was such a nasty thing that a Bellevue Hospital report of 1927 suggested that after just three drinks with only a bit of the stuff mixed in, one could go permanently blind. By 1929, about 50,000 people had died in the U.S. due to alcohol tainted with wood alcohol. Of course, Red was actually suggesting that they just serve Mike pure wood alcohol. After the group enthusiastically approved of the plan, Red bought some wood alcohol at a local paint shop for 10 cents. Well, it didn't work. Mike slept it off and appeared back at the speakeasy the next morning, feeling ready to drink for free yet again. One night, Murder Trust member and fruit vendor Daniel Kreisberg watched Mike drink a quart and a half of straight wood alcohol. That night, Mike passed out right where he'd been sitting, falling off the bar stool. Thinking they had finally done it, Frank, undertaker extraordinaire, knelt beside Mike and listened for breathing. Slow and labored. Only a matter of time, Frank declared. Then suddenly, Mike started snoring. The man essentially drank six cups of paint thinner and only needed to worry about sleep apnea. 
And then, Bright Guy Frank had a new idea. They decided to soak the raw oysters from the lunch tray in wood alcohol and feed it to Mike. I don't know exactly what they were thinking considering feeding him straight wood alcohol didn't work, but whatever. These guys, they were getting desperate. When that didn't work, they made him a sandwich. Spoiled sardines, poison, and carpet tacks. Nothing. Durable Mike could not be killed. In fact, when Tony asked how he was feeling after his death sandwich, Mike said, never felt better in all my life. Concluding, probably wisely, that it was unlikely that anything Mike ingested was going to kill him fast enough, and they were paying on these insurance policies weekly, the group decided on the idea of Tony to freeze Mike to death. Tony had some experience with this particular method. You see, for the man blessed with a conniving entrepreneurial spirit, there is always a way to make some easy cash. For Tony, that was 27-year-old Maybelle Carlson. In 1932, the destitute young woman had appeared in Tony's speakeasy. She had nowhere to go, so Tony took her in, briefly. She developed a cold, which turned into a pneumonia, and then he took out a $2,000, or $45,000 today, life insurance policy on her. Then, on the night of March 16, 1932, he pushed her bed under an open window and poured ice water all over her sheets and mattress. He force-fed her alcohol until she passed out, stripped her naked, and wrapped her in the wet sheets to freeze to death. Somehow, the doctor that was called to the house to investigate her death concluded that there were no suspicious circumstances to it, and Tony then collected that insurance policy. I don't know why he hadn't thought about it sooner for old Mikey Malloy. It worked once before. Anyway, on an extremely cold night, they fed Mike booze until he passed out, took him to a park, dumped him in the snow, and dumped five gallons of water on his bare chest. Then they left, convinced the next people to find him would find him dead. Well, they weren't so lucky, but Mike was. When Tony arrived at his speakeasy the following day to open it up, there was a surprise waiting for him. Mike was laying in the middle of the floor after having made his way a half a mile back to his home. The Daily News would say he didn't even get the sniffles and was back the next day for his alky ration. Okay, now it was time to just, well, get violent, or I guess more violent. They then called in Hershey Green, a taxi driver, and used him to run Mike over. After getting him blackout drunk yet again, on January 30th, 1933, they put him in the middle of a side street and Hershey ran over him at 45 miles per hour. It didn't kill him, which I'm sure at this point you're totally shocked to hear, but it did put him in the hospital for three weeks with some broken bones. I guess the alcohol made it so there wasn't anything tense in his entire body, so I guess that helped. The men at this point assumed he was dead, but couldn't find him. What to do, what to do? They've got too much invested at this point, am I right? No body, no insurance policy. So what do you do? You find another body, or in their case, make one. The new plan was that the murder trust would murder a rando. Then they would call in a Dr. Frank Manzella, a rather unscrupulous fella, who would pronounce the man dead with a phony cause of death, uh, put a fake ID of Nicholas Mellory, or on him. The gang found another fella by the name of Joseph Murray and attempted to also run him over and kill him in the middle of the street. 
Thankfully, Joseph recovered from his broken ribs and major concussion after 55 days in the hospital. So then Michael Malloy shows back up at the speakeasy after his three weeks in the hospital. Apparently, the guys had actually called around to the hospitals, but they were asking for Nicholas Mellory, which wasn't his real name. His real name is Michael Malloy. Anyway, these guys are, they're not, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. And they're very bad at murder, as it turns out. But anyway... After Mikey starts drinking again at the bar, Red gained a bit of a conscience. Maybe all those days of serving each other prohibition swill got to his heart a bit. He would testify, I told him he better keep away from here, otherwise that he was going to get fixed, what the bunch was going to do to him. Malloy evidently responded, if they do anything to me, they will suffer for it themselves. Fed up with the ineptitudes of the previous months, Tony came up with the plan that would end it all. He found a furnished room for rent in the newspaper, a very particular furnished room that was also furnished with a gas jet in the wall. They found just the spot, a four-story building near 168th Street, less than a mile from Tony's speakeasy. Delia Murphy, the landlord, rented the room furnished with a table, a bed, a set of drawers, and the requisite nozzle to feed gas to the room's lighting fixture. They, and in particular Daniel and Red, who very quickly got over that guilty conscience, would lure Mike into the room and gas him to death. On February 23rd, 1933, after he had been fed nearly two quarts of wood alcohol, he passed out for the night. The murderers did, in fact, throw Mike over their shoulder and take him up to the rented room. They connected a tube to the coal gas jet and shoved it in Mike's mouth and turned it on. Finally, Michael Iron Man Malloy, the durable barfly, the hard nut to crack, the unkillable man, was killed. Dr. Frank was called, signing the death certificate. The cause of death, according to him, was lobar pneumonia. Frank, the undertaker, the other one, brought the death certificate to the speakeasy to a celebration by the rest of the murder trust. On the morning of February 24th, 1933, the grave superintendent, Alex J. Medovich, received a burial order for Nicholas Mallory from Frank Pasqua. The deceased, as noted in the order, was a charity case. Alex selected grave 2070 in the St. Francis section. Frank worked up a bill to send to the insurance company to the tune of $460 or $10,023, despite the fact that he only spent about $3,023. That's a pretty hefty profit, but it was only the beginning. On March 4th, one insurance company issued an $800 check to Joseph Mellory, a.k.a. Red, and stuck it in the mail. Tony, however, got his hands on the check and divided out the money. Tony kept about $335 or $7,500 in 2023 money for himself and tossed $65 to Red, who had actually done most of the dirty work. That's not very much money, but $1,400 in 2023 was quite the windfall for old Red. Tony also set aside some money for Dr. Frank and for a few others because this murder trust, again, really couldn't keep their mouth shut and just kept adding more people to the fray. The trouble began when Frank went to the Prudential offices to claim the rest of the insurance money. A bit suspicious, the insurance broker asked to see the body. It had already been buried, Frank said. Very suspicious. Additionally, throughout the Bronx, a story started spreading over games of cards and with hushed voices. It was the saga of a man so hardy, so tough, that he couldn't even be killed by being hit by a car. Mother Nature couldn't touch him. Mike the Durable was officially becoming a legend. In the last week of April, an investigation officially started. 
The men of the law hit the streets to start to verify the authenticity of the wild rumors. And then people started to talk to law enforcement. A random criminal told a story of a meeting at Frank's house with a plan to kill a lonely drunk. Others told similar tales. It turns out the guys weren't so quiet in the speakeasy, and even if they had been, the smell of the wood alcohol wafted throughout the entire place. Everyone could smell what they were doing. On May 11th, permission was granted to exhume Michael Malloy's body. And Joseph Murray came forward, saying that these dudes had also tried to kill him and agreed to become a material witness, eagerly, it seems, when he was offered accommodations and $3 a day throughout the course of the investigation and trial. Hershey Green, the taxi driver, Daniel Kreisberg, the fruit vendor, Red Murphy, the hapless bartender, Frank Pasqua, the undertaker, and of course, Tony Marino, the speakeasy owner, were arrested and put to trial. Dr. Frank Manzella, the signer of the phony death certificate, was held as an accessory after the fact. During the trial, Hershey would say, I knew it was criminal, but I didn't give it any thought. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty clear. All five were convicted and the four major players were sentenced to death by the electric chair. When the judge asked if the convicted wanted to speak, Tony would answer for all of them, saying, We have nothing to say, Your Honor. The Ossining Citizen Record would write, At Sing Sing Prison tonight, in the little room with the horrible chair, the Bronx Murder Syndicate will sit down to death. One by one, the undertaker Frank Pasqua, the speakeasy operator Anthony Marino, the bartender Joseph Murphy, and the fruit dealer Daniel Kreisberg will die, and the state of New York will have avenged the strangest murder in its history. I would be remiss if I didn't give proper credit to my primary source for today's episode. I read a very compelling book called On the House, The Bizarre Killing of Michael Malloy by Simon Reed. This story is obviously a colorful one, and Simon does a pretty good job of ensuring that we get as many colors as possible. I wouldn't say it's to the degree of quality of those books written by Eric Larson, but it has a similar vibe. And if you're intrigued by this story and want to know more, and I do mean much more, you can read it in full detail by picking the book up. I've linked it in the description box. Thanks for hanging out with me. I know I said I was going to stay away from murders, but this story was just too compelling not to tell. Poor Michael. Here's hoping that he didn't suffer too, too much and that he's finally resting in peace. Next week, we're staying pretty far in the past and doing a good old-fashioned train robbery. But not just any train robbery, one of the largest and most well-thought-out train robberies in history. Because we're hopping over the pond for this heist, we're doing a pins drink. Head to the liquor store and get you some. Oh, but before you go, go ahead and leave a review for the podcast if you're listening. I hope you've heard enough by this point to give a good, honest review. By doing that, you're helping me gain more listeners and it doesn't cost you a dime. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murdering someone over and over and over again for the insurance payout.